Hello, Mog. Hi. A pleasure to have you on. Yeah, Mog is a prolific author. He is an Egyptologist, an occultist, and many other things. And for this month, we will be doing a number of shows about Egyptology to help promote the Indiegogo with David Leonardi, which I am assisting with, for a documentary on deciphering the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Now, Mog... (laughs) What's Indiegogo? That sounds fun. It is a crowdfunding site. You post something, and then people give you money. All right. Sounds like a good thing. It's the best thing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always take a risk of other people's money. (laughs) Rather than your own. No, I know what you mean. Crowdsourcing, it seems okay. Mm. Good idea. It is fabulous, and I'm sure that over time, more protective measures will be implemented to make sure backers get what they've been promised, but at this time, they have to use their discretion, which we all have to do when we buy products. And we've all bought exceptionally good things and really awful things. All right. But before we veer too far <laughs> off topic, <laughs> can you maybe beginning with your background and what got you into Egyptology? Um. Well, I, I, oh God, that's a, a, a difficult thing. I, I going way back, I, I, I suppose it's through. If you're interested in occultism and magic, it's probably through the religious thing, really, through being kind of a, a pagan, a magician, which is a religious quest. I think it's it's fairly natural that there are two, there are two main cultures that you you can't seem to avoid in this territory, which is India and Egypt, sooner or later. So, although it, I, I, originally, when I first started out interested in the, the occult, I read Blavatsky. And Blavatsky, I suppose, that's the archetypal East-West sort of fusion, really, of Eastern and Western ideas. So it's, it's called, uh, whatever it is, the Veil of Isis and but a lot of it is is about India. So having read Blavatsky and not really be able to make much of it, I, for, for a while, my for a long time, my first interest, first academic interest as well, was in the Far East and the South Asia, and specifically in India, <coughs> Indian technologies. And I did that for studied that for quite a long time. <coughs> Although alongside that, because I was also interested in Crowley and Telema and stuff like that. You do tend to kind of accumulate a, a certain aspect, a certain element of uh, Egyptian mythology because the Crowley system is is very much is full of Egyptian gods and goddesses as as is well known. So in a kind of um, bricolage sort of way with Egypt at, at first. <laughs> I, I kind of I pick things up, although after a while I did acquire um, a kind of a mentor who was who was a another Egyptologist really. So it was an, he was he's very 
skilled linguist, but uh, but was interested to learn a little bit more about magic and 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 the technical side of it, if you like. You'd probably call that as as experimental archaeology. So for a while, I interacted with with him. I probably I don't really want to say say who that is. I think about what I want to say it is because it didn't end very well. It's like a lot of relationships with gurus that one has over the years they don't always end so well so but he was technically very proficient um and you know he's quite well thought of he's he's dead now so it doesn't matter too much um so i learned i did learn a lot from him it was it, it was quite difficult at, uh, process of learning but i did learn a lot from him and he turned me on in fact it was it was this guy who told me because because he knew I was interested in in the god the Egyptian god Set, and he said go and study the temple of Seti the first, which is actually a, a, even if you're in Oxford, it's actually a, a, there's an enormous book, one of these el, what they call elephant format to give you an idea. It's a kind of biggest bound book that's possible to get almost. It's huge. Has to have a special cabinet made for it, and it, or at least it was quite a big one, and it was four volumes uh, by Amis Cowboy on, which would like who was an artist who went to the Temple of uh, Seti the First in Abydos and did all these drawings, really. So it was almost like having a version of the temple. But at first, I couldn't really understand because apart from the name Seti the First, uh, this. Uh, Pharaoh, who's named after the god Set, there wasn't any obvious element in this in this book that uh, really revealed stuff to me at first. Anyway, so I, I kind of thought maybe he was sending me on a wild goose chase, which he sort of thing that he did kind of do <laughs> quite often. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, it, it actually wasn't a wild goose chase. But at the time, I kind of because we fell out, and I thought that was it. So. I did that for a while, and um, but I was still studying the Indology um, and stuff. And I guess for one reason or another, well, I, as I say, I've, there's always been this kind of dream amongst um, pagan theologians to combine, to somehow connect uh, the Egyptian way of looking at the world with the Indian way of looking at the world, and of course, there's a very famous series of books that occultists place great store by, which is all written by uh, Kenneth Grant, and one of the that's pretty much his claim to fame as well that he wanted to somehow connect to interpret the philosophy of Alistair Crowley to say that there was a kind of secret hidden philosophy behind that and essentially that hidden philosophy was this kind of blend of Egyptian um, magical ideas with Hindu magical ideas really from the Tantric tradition so his book obviously especially the the book Alistair Crowley and the Hidden God is sent a lot of people on on a quest or a wild goose chase if you like whichever way so that was always on the back of my mind that I, I wanted to Sort of connect the two, or they, uh, you know, they, they, they're both areas of interest. And so after a while, um, I finished being a, 
a researcher at Oxford for a while, and so I, I was looking for a new area of study, really. So I just the Egyptology department is is um, is the next is the there. It's in it's the same building more or less, or it's just across the corridor. So it's pretty, and I, I you know used to flow between the two anyway. So it was a fairly natural process, really, to sort of use the skills. I knew how to do how to do research and things like that. So I, and I was a member of the university, so I could easily use the facilities to to teach myself. You see, my original research research would be philosophy, which is one of those disciplines that people don't really understand what it is. <laughs> so it was always there, and and in fact. Even the, I wrote the, the this little book ages ago called on sexual magic, which I'm still not completely happy with the book. But one day I'll do another revision for it or something. But it was it had something, and in that I had a little bit about sex, and that's a long time ago. That's in the 1980s. So I've always it's always been on the back burner, really. But in the last maybe in the last ten years. It um it got more intense. Anyway, so that's how that's uh, that's the answer to your question. That's how I started. Where do I go now? <laughs> well, philosophy is. Oh, philosophy! I was talking about philosophy. 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 That I always really my research in India was Indian philosophy. It's an incredibly esoteric field, really. My research. If you think. Of but not only do I just, most people just study Hindu religion or Indian art or something like that, but I ended up doing Indian, Indian philosophy, which is a very big specialism, even within philosophy itself, which is already quite specialised. Uh, but I, I think philosophy is, is actually a, quite an important, everybody, everybody does it uh, one way or another. They just don't call it that, but everybody has to think and well, everybody enjoys thinking and arguing, um, <clears throat> and you know, trying to say, "Oh, you're not logical," or whatever. So, lo- it's, it's a good thing t- to learn. But uh, I, in the area of philosophy, that is also a, a, quite a good area to connect um, and ideas and thought to connect in India with Egypt. So, as I say, for the last ten years, I've never, I don't forget all the. Uh, Indian material that I've studied and I still keep up with that and I still uh, in fact with the latest piece of work that I'm just finishing off it's been good to to revisit both really to kind of look at uh, uh, the Indian mystery and that connects us directly with Egypt so that's been quite satisfying to bring both things together because it has to be said as well that it's People don't really. It's the great dream to connect the two together, but in a way, people think of it as a little, maybe, as a little bit cranky uh, to try and connect these days, right? The idea connect, connect it, or that a lot of people have wanted to kind of say these connections are there, and because they always look a little bit weird or whatever, like saying, "Oh, there are pyramids in India" or something like that. It, it's the realm of very speculative stuff. In a in a way, people are probably assuming that that this is another nutty theory, which is kind of 
I don't think it is a nutty theory, really, this stuff. But um, I, I, it is a little bit of a uphill struggle that I've, I've set myself to try and say, well, there is this amazing, there is this amazing story of the connection between Egypt and India, and there is some sort of common strata of of belief between, that connects both cultures. So the the dream, if you like, of occultists in, over the years in various books that they've never quite fulfilled. Uh, it's never quite convinced people in the end, as they've got to know more about either culture than usually those theories have kind of fallen apart. Um, but behind all that, <laughs> there, 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 there is actually some quite sort of um, good material to look at. Anyway, so that's so I'm well, well, and in a way we are in the living in the West or in America or wherever you want you are. I'm in uh, in UK. We 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 tend to sort of practice some sort of bricolage. We're sort of so influenced by so many different cultures that we've interacted with in our history uh, that it's natural for us or, or to want to combine the best bits really <laughs> from these two very impressive cultures which are um, India uh, and Egypt both of which have such a lot to say about uh, religion and <clears throat> the mysterious world of magic so it's definitely the area to go, but it's obviously it's fairly well trodden by people who've also actually in terms of Egyptology, it's not unusual if you go back into the history of uh, Egyptology to find there are Egyptologists who are also quite knowledgeable about Egypt. Both cultures do, both experts in both areas do speculate about each other. And use models from from that they find from one and try and apply it in the other. And um, Monia, no Max Muller, uh, who's a kind of Victorian Egyptologist or Victorian Indologist, he was pretty good on both cultures. Really, he he published um, quite sophisticated academic books in in both areas. So it, it I'm not saying I'm going to do that be nice but uh, so there's there's some basis for connecting them and certainly for occultists well it's what we do really now hinduism is certainly not a homogenous religion and it's unfortunate that we only know the religions of india through this umbrella term when you're talking about the connections between egypt and india are you talking about cross-cultural exchange or concepts that were independently arrived upon by both well, I mean, this is that's the heart of the matter, really. Uh, you'd have to say contact between uh, Mesopotamia, the Middle East, the ancient Near East, and India uh, is known from very, very early times. Uh, just to kind of illustrate that, that the I'll tell you what, a good example that maybe people of of very direct connection between. Um, the Near East, uh, the Middle East, if you like, uh, and India would be in astrology. That Indian astrology, if it, it, although it looks very, very esoteric uh, when you see it presented, 
uh, in newspapers and everything, actually is the Greek system of astrology. It's exactly the same. All the signs and, uh, of the zodiac in the Indian system of astrology are, the, are just translations of the Greek into Sanskrit. And pretty much everything is exactly the same as the Greek um, astrology of 2,000 years ago. So there's a very, very direct connection. And that connection about astronomy and astrology is actually goes is even earlier than that. There was an earlier connection between India and Babylonia. So they have a lot of Babylonian ideas, which is not surprising considering how sophisticated and advanced the Babylonian astronomy was in the ancient world. I think those sort of technical ideas just tend to travel. So there's there's a direct link uh, at that stage. And then, of course, there's the direct land bridge as various invasions have gone. So there's there's a flow of ideas both ways. That um, it's not it's not a very commonly known study uh, topic or, or phenomena that 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 that, that has happened. But it, it, there's definitely loads of stuff of that in the record. In a sense, this is why I'm getting round your idea of whether it's just a common interest. Um, but but in a sense, there is a common interest because uh, two thousand years ago, approximately, there was a, there must have been some sort of global in the northern hemisphere global culture of magic and technology that, in in a sense, cross was was cross cultural that people so ideas that you find in um that are popular amongst magicians certain ways of doing things they they can they just travel they don't they don't they're not uh, culturally limited in that way uh so that but but obviously there are certain ideas and uh, core concepts that develop because of india india's um history and culture itself although of course it gets this also huge influence Flux of ideas from the supposedly from what is now Persian culture. Uh, many of its early deities are the same as you would find within ancient Persia. So there's there's all sorts of layers of context. It's quite a difficult job to tease things out. Really, often they 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 look different, but they're underneath. And in fact, um, I was reading this thing by uh, a tantric scholar called Gordon White, who said that he was analysing one particular myth called the uh, Barber's Story, which he said was so distinctive, it was it was just really difficult to believe. It's an Indian story, the Barber, the barber Tale. He said it was just impossible to believe that that didn't uh, get to Europe via via India itself, you know, that it was, even though it sounds, he says, I would argue that the remarkable similarities between the witchcraft law, as found in Somadeva, who's a famous writer, a story called The Barber's Tale, and other Asian traditions, and that of the Roman Striga, who were kind of witches, and European traditions on the other. He said, you can't really explain the similarities between those stories on the basis of 
some sort of coincidental independent innovation by cultures across the globe. Now, obviously, it happens that people independently come up with all sorts of interesting ideas because they're if you're practicing magic, maybe, or if you're doing the same sort of thing, then, then maybe you do tend to... I mean, there's a good example in supposedly in Buddhism because Buddhism likes to have sermons. They like to preach sermons. You need a space in which to preach a sermon, so you're going to kind of build something and and if you have a religion that where there has to be someone has to make a speech then it it does tend to determine the type of temple architecture you get but it goes so that so it can happen but it's just that there are these really weird stories that obviously have traveled the barber's tale in a nutshell you've got this barber <coughs> uh who's got a very pretty wife uh, and the king, the local ruler or chieftain, has been having an illicit affair with his wife. Um, anyway, because he's the king, the barber can't really do very much about it. He can't really say, stop, stop having an affair with my wife. But being quite clever, he says, well, he comes up with another strategy, which is to convince him that his wife is really a witch. Uh, and that she's only having an affair with him so that she can slowly suck the life out of him. Which the barber, right, who's quite good with makeup and everything, has taken the precaution of making himself look a bit drained and, uh, you know, whatever. He says, well, she's been sucking the life out of me for years and years, especially, you know, by too much sex and also by coming to me in my sleep and draining my... So it's like a vampire, really. So he manages to persuade the king that that she's sucking the life out of him. Uh, and as a result of which, the king breaks off the affair with his wife. And I'm not sure if in the story he gets his wife back or he's, he's vengeance, really. He's kind of messed her life up. Anyway, apparently that story, which I must admit I'd never heard of before, but apparently is it, that is a story that you get. It definitely comes from India because it's in this great big compendium of of stories that you find there. Uh, but also it occurs in European witchcraft the idea of the witch as someone who drains the energy out of people in their in in their sleep and. That that idea. Well, but the thing you say, well, in story, but because it's also almost every culture in the world has a story in which of the night witch of some sort of entity that appears in your in the bedchamber basically, and for the unwary will suck the life out of you if you're not careful. And, and that's a quite a good example as well of a story, a type of uh, entity that you will find described in India over and over again, but also in Egypt. That's a very, very Egyptian story. The idea of a a creature that comes into the bedroom and sucks the life out of you. Freud would have a field there. Freud, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Freud's okay. Freud fits with all this sort of stuff. Yeah, why not? He was quite an antiquarian. He loved collecting artifacts. Yeah. You wrote a book. <laughs> Called uh, supernatural assault in ancient Egypt. Yeah, 
Seth, Evil Sleep, and the Egyptian Vampire. Yeah. And you are also a tantric practitioner. Yeah. From what we were discussing, uh, that offers fertile ground to move on to those two topics. Uh huh. The Egyptian, the, in a way, the, the book Supernatural Assault, what is, that is an area of study, which incidentally I'm gonna do a bigger project on that at some point. Um, because of, there's a whole, but that is a very, very good area that, uh, of approach that really does connect, um, that's both areas of India and Egypt and, uh, Near East or whatever. Now, as I say, it could be the, but um, that it's just it's the reality <laughs> yeah. that this is the this is so such a common theme all over the the world that people have this idea of um, nocturnal assault that 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 things come and get you in your sleep <laughs> and of course the Egyptians were very very um, adept at this type of well, it's got it's got all sorts of it can be a, a you could call it a type of magic, but it, like you mentioned the Freud, but it's it's also therapeutic. You see. It's got a therapeutic element to it that's not unlike Freud. Um, I don't know Freud may even have known some of these stories, but certainly the idea that uh, that dreams are diagnostic that would be completely up the Egyptian. Street, the way that they would see things, the ancient Egyptian street, they they definitely would see it that way. That if if you can provoke a dream, and there and you maybe they, they do it in an even more focused way. This, that they they have certain techniques they would use to provoke certain types of dreams that are that are crucial, um, and they would do this in the temple. In the temple of Seti the first, in fact, there is a dream incubation um, place room, a room for dream incubation there, where the people could go and um, basically experts would provoke a dream. So you are ill, uh, or you feel depressed or whatever it is, something, something's making you not feel so good. So you go to the, the temple and they incubate a dream for you, and you sleep in the temple. And so the experts are there on hand to interpret that and they interpret the symbols of the dream in a very Freudian way really just as as he would with you know if um it if you say you go you're going to take a punt at it then he'll say hey well punt cunt there's a sort of it's sounds like a poetic thing the the deep mind works in terms of puns and wordplay and strange things and thing and symbols in dreams are, are kind of not obvious. A symbol in a, in an Egyptian dream will represent something often quite um, paradoxical. To it, it might be, say, for instance, having a dream of a funeral of your own funeral might be that's actually quite quite a good thing. That's a good thing to dream in Egypt. Dream of uh, having a funeral. Because the opposite is not having a funeral. Not having a funeral means you kind of died out in the desert and nobody's found your body and you've probably been eaten by uh, wild beasts. If you have a funeral, it means you've got a regular life. You've, you've got a family. And that would be a very important thing in 
the Hindu way of looking at things as well, that to have a, your relatives to be able to perform your funeral is is like the culmination of your life. Um, so if you dream of that, that's actually a good omen. That means you've got a good life. Uh, you're happy about your life because you can afford to, you can move on, you can die. Everything is, all your affairs are in order. Uh, whereas on the face of it, you might think, oh, that's a terrible omen. So they certainly have, they use dreams therapeutically and it implies that people maybe are very, very affected by dreams. And then the other thing that turned me on to this, and this, this has come out in the documentary as well recently, is that there, there are certain types of dreams that that people have, <coughs> especially this dream of the night hag or the night witch, so that it's, it's funny, if you can, usually if you ask people this, anybody listening to the podcast, or a number of times I've mentioned this in lectures, I always end up talking to people afterwards and I say, well, imagine if you had a dream in which, <coughs> you, you know, you're lying in your house and uh, it's a normal day and, <coughs> uh, and but then it's, it's in the middle of the night and you hear strange steps coming in. Up uh, uh, into the house and footsteps coming up the stairs and you know you're kind of really really scared but for some reason you can't do anything you can't move you're paralyzed but you're still very aware and something comes in the room and uh, usually it is something quite monstrous um, old hence the name old old hat okay where were we we're talking shall I carry on a little bit we were talking about old hags. The old hag. So the old hag comes into your room and she uh, lies in the bed next to you or maybe she grabs you, she lies on top of you and she takes a big grip on you. <laughs> you know, this is quite a disturbing experience. And it goes on for... And sometimes people have much more elaborate versions of this. <clears throat> and then eventually it comes to an end or you manage to bring it to an end or something... I mean, there's usually this thing you you kind of think you or turn the light on, but that doesn't work because you're kind of paralyzed. You're awake but also asleep. Anyway, that is apparently almost everybody at some point in their life will have had that experience. And some people are unlucky enough to have that uh, on a regular basis or they get used to it. <clears throat> but it's not a sign of mental illness apparently it's just a normal part of being a human being it happens to everybody in fact i've come to believe there are certain things you can do to make that happen you can strangely if you sleep in the position of osiris which is flat on your back basically um, and this is not necessarily to do with the fact that you can't breathe and so you're a snorer, even if you're not a snorer and you're used to lie, but lying on your back in like as you would do in the coffin is more likely to invoke this sort of uh, experience. Uh, and it, as I say, the experts say it's not a sign of mental illness. It's a fairly normal part of our lives, and some people it happens to it happens to everybody at some point, and um, some people more than others. So you kind of think, given all those things are true, if that's true now, there's no reason to suppose that that hasn't always been the case, that that we as human beings have always experienced this. And so you project this back a couple of thousand years, 
to a culture like the Egyptians, who are already very focused on dreams, uh, then you kind of think they must have had this experience. They, 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 this is the kind of stuff that they're dealing with. Um, and the same for India, because India has a lot of lot to say about it, and to bet and everything is is the aspect of their culture that people don't necessarily know so much about is the dream even in in technical medical texts uh there'll be whole chapters telling you how how as a doctor you deal with people's uh dreams especially when they're dying or they're very ill because people when they're ill uh, a serious illness in the indian tradition the dreams will be the people will pay a particular attention to the dream because a dream may help with therapy, or as is important in ancient medicine, which we maybe don't deal with so much. You see, if you're an ancient physician, you have to you have to know when not to take on a patient, because if you take on a patient and they die under your care, then it's going to cause all sorts of trouble. Uh, there's lots of stories about that. So you have to pay if from the nature of their dreams you can, it's obvious that that person is on the way out which is the indian way of looking at it. it's also the egyptian way of looking at it then you're probably gonna maybe say well i don't really want to treat you as a patient but um you know and it's because i'll get into trouble and uh, i'll help you out a bit i'd do this that and the other if i were you but so you can you can avoid it so in the egyptian uh way of looking at things this te- this uh, uh, science of the dream and of magic is very much more developed. Um, in in a sense, we when we talk about uh, the discovery of the unconscious in modern psychology, in Freud and whatever, it's it's really the rediscovery of the unconscious. The, all both these cultures really they, they knew a huge amount about this uh, about consciousness and aspects of that that we we kind of only just getting on board with really so there's stuff to be learned there so there's stuff to be learned in terms of all the technical stuff that people, results magic that people like to do there's stuff there to do with a more gnostic approach to magic in terms of i mean it's quite important as i discuss this in the book in the cult of in the mystery tradition an awful lot of the actual initiation took place within dreams and that you were you were given essentially you were given a drug you were given drugs in the mystery tradition to put you into a hypnotic sleep and the initiation into the cult of isis for instance took place in sleep uh in the dreamscape uh so there's obviously something that they so that you can be, you can reach some sort of gnostic higher religious uh, purpose through this these times of technologies, and there's also a kind of more ordinary therapeutic uh, element to it. So if people have got problems with, in, as they regularly talk about in ancient texts, with fertility, uh, with wanting to start a family or or have more children, and this is, which is one of the big problems that. Uh, that really worries people in uh, the ancient world, which it probably still does. Uh, then dream therapy <coughs> would be the approach, and it kind of makes a lot of sense, really, when you read these accounts of people who, 
you know, and they seem like real accounts where someone says <coughs> they were trying to have a baby and they just couldn't have a baby. You know, they tried everything and nothing was working. So they went to the temple and uh, they, they, the priest said, eat this plant and go to sleep and tell me what you dream. And they dreamt. Uh, well they dreamt the therapy in fact Uh, now you might say from a psychological point of view it's almost like it removes it may have removed the tension it may have been um, because sometimes they say with people who have fertility problems that as soon as they've had a as soon as they've had the treatment the fertility treatment or whatever and they've produced their first child the next child doesn't require fertility treatment. It's almost like the tension has been taken out of the situation. So there may have been that may have been an element in it all along. So these are quite sound medical uh, approaches, psych- psychomedical approaches that the ancient people had. That, that was one of the areas that I, I really studied a lot was um, was Ayurveda, ancient ancient medical material, really. And it's another area that, obviously, if someone's got a good piece of medical, a good technique in the ancient world, then, then it's going to spread, right? If it's any good, then uh, you're going to find it all over the place. And you do find certain techniques in use in Indian medicine uh, that are also in use in um, Egyptian medicine. The sources of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian medicine are much less, so they probably haven't not so many of them have survived as as you've got from India, but you can assume that there may be some the system of medicine is probably similar in some ways. So yeah, those 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 were broadly the areas that got got me into that. And uh, uh, so you, you deal with this class of night spirits, um, which are which can be troublesome and vampiric, and that people took a lot of trouble with in the ancient world to deal with. And you can learn. A lot, most of the magic they do is all connected with this sort of stuff, really. Either how to defend yourself against it, or how maybe in some circumstances how, how to send it at another person. How to use the spirits of the night, uh, and who are also related to your ancestors, to how to set them to use. Uh, to do what you want, you know, to get what you want, or just to sort your problems out, really, or just uh, whatever. That's that's a huge part of the of the way they look at things. And you would also people maybe it's only recently again in, in the Indian context that people realise that that's part of Indian magic as well. Uh, that they also have this category of night the night witch the dakini or the yogini who doesn't appear in the normal temple has to have special temples built in the middle of nowhere really terrifying places and you look at them they're really scary uh outside of the civilization where these uh creatures of the night can be drawn down into the magical circle and people and they basically they they feed their devotees. Their devotees are fed by her, um, and in return they feed her as well. And, and so then a certain amount of the the feeding that takes place uh, between is there's a, obviously a sexual component to that. 
that's the, the old mysteries of sexual magic, really, are all, are all tied up with these spirits. It's a very, very fertile area, really, to um, to discuss. And it's very, well, quite a scary area, <laughs> as well, as to be said. Um, you know, it's all right reading this stuff in books, but when you actually go to some of the places, they're completely terrifying. Um, anyway, I've, even though I wrote a little book about it, which had some ideas, it's okay, I think. Uh, mo- yeah, I'm still working on it. I've still got a huge amount of material to kind of think about and try. You have to try and try it out as well um, from both traditions. Based on what you've said, what I understand is, is that since a person's defenses are lowered when they're asleep, it's an ideal time to use certain spells for good or for ill. Yeah, I think that's true. That's very... Well, it sort of makes sense. The bedroom is is a kind of potential, place of potential danger. In the sense, they're at more danger because, you know, infant mortality is lower in the ancient world, so they have to be protected in their sleep. And there's an awful lot of uh, folklore and and techniques used to protect children who are sleeping uh, from things. So they're thought children are thought to be particularly vulnerable in sleep. And then there's the parents themselves or the, the adults themselves who are also yeah, it's it's a it's a a place of potential weakness uh, to be well it's a place you know the the, be- the bedroom is psychologically physically the spirits uh, gather there right for all sorts of reasons because of the sexual activity taking place there which you know that gives them the chance to be involved in the process of rebirth so they're naturally drawn to that and they're curious. Plus, they uh, they're supposed to be a kind of in in the Middle Eastern way of looking at things. They're a they're a distinct, almost like race of entities, a different type of entity. The the spirits, the jinn, or whatever. So they have their desires and uh, motives and whatever, which also focus there. They know it's a point of uh, <coughs> of vulnerability. It's a place where we dream and where the ancestors are kind of so yeah it's uh it, it's de- it's definitely the place plus you know the whole interest in sexuality and sexual magic um i mean it, it in a sense when you're looking at egyptian magic in the past we've kind of tended to focus too much on on these big structured temples was obviously our magical structures and important because we didn't there, there weren't really a lot of examples of of the the stuff outside in in the normal houses what those people and in a sense they're so blinded by the gold and the beautiful things in temples that you kind of it took a long time for people to be interested in what happened outside i think in the supernatural assault i i talk a little bit about this kind of little really kind of sort of artifact little flake of stone that probably wouldn't if you saw it in a museum you wouldn't really be very interested in it because there's so many other beautiful uh visual things that are a little bit of stone with a 
of some obscure writing on it seems kind of quite boring, really. Um, but that's it. But some expert and for ages they had this thing and they knew it was something magical. Uh, and but they didn't really even bother. They didn't bother to translate it because thought it's going to be boring. You know, it's not going to be. It's not going to be something uh, something like the Bible or some great work of literature. It's going to be something really banal and uninteresting. Uh, but then someone did sort of translate it and said, well, actually, it's, it's not at all banal. It's, uh, but it is about how to protect the bedroom from these spirits. So it tells you a lot. It's the technique. Uh, it's almost like a spell kit. It's, it is a little spell kit. It says you need this and you need that, and then you need to read this little prayer or get someone to read this little prayer and you have to set these candles up in the four quarters of the bedroom and you're going to protect it from these particular class of of beings that uh that probably in most books on on egypt nobody even mentioned existed before it's a whole kind of different whole world quite different than the uh, of um a whole spiritual world that was much more of a reality to the to the Egyptians and to I'd say to everybody really. This is the spirit. They're talking about the spirit world that is that is there and that people all over the world uh, encounter. So yeah, from that tiny little thing, they you can almost reconstruct <laughs> the whole life of a uh, spiritual life of, of people and some of their concerns. Um, very very fertile area I think and also to find that that's still that's not just history that's a living tradition <laughs> the things that the ordinary people did back in Pharaonic Egypt are still they haven't died whereas the big stuff died out or gets supplanted by other people and the buildings get destroyed what the folk did this seems to have remained fairly constant since since forever, you know, the more you find out about it, but it's still quite complex that material. But it's it um, that it definitely interests me. Well, it's I'd say that would that would it's not such an unusual thing to think now to say you're more interested. In the, everybody's interested in folk folk religion and folk magic now. It's become the new rock and roll, really. <laughs> 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 you know how absurd that's going to sound to some of my listeners. It's going to sound what? It's it's Is going it? to sound a little absurd to some of my listeners. Those Is who it are really? the loop. Well, I mean that that happens within a special. Sure. Why why would that be? Why would that be absurd? Well, it's like it's like a biologist saying, "Well, microRNA is all the rage now." Yeah. Of, and to biologists, yes, it is, but to everyone else, it's... I think, no, no, I think uh, I'm right. No, I think the... <laughs> the I, I know, yeah, well, from within the nerdosphere then, right? Uh, <laughs> it's true. But, it is a, it's, but really, nobody was very much interested in... Or you could say history is the new rock and roll. Nobody, 20 years ago, nobody was really doing... There were, well, there was, were some notable examples, but... Certainly, the history of magic and folk magic and all this and paganism, it, it was a very s small group of people who were interested in it, really, or as practitioners. But certainly, in terms of the academic research, there were a few notable 
books, but on the whole. But now, now it seems to have, it's everywhere. You know, people are interested. And in terms of witchcraft, whereas before you had this kind of view of witchcraft as, I don't know, the kind of, um, I suppose quite new age in a way. <laughs> uh, or you had all garden, gardenerian stuff. The gardenerian revival was very important when the, in the, from the 1950s. But then there's this other, uh, tradition of witchcraft, you know, whether they call it traditional or the folk practice. Or to say, even in terms of history in itself, it used to be that history was all about elite figures. It was about kings and queens and big, the big things in history, the big buildings and the big works of art and the major movements. But then you have this kind of move towards social history. We like to, people are also interested to know how how ordinary people like themselves did these things and how and what what were their motivations what happened below stairs in a way <clears throat> and this is the equivalent i think folk ma- folk magic's like that but yeah huge uh, i i think there's many more books now being published and people are researching this on the folk traditions <clears throat> in witchcraft so yeah i'll stick by that but yeah why not it could be absurd as well <laughs> <laughs> Good to be absurd sometimes. And you're talking about, you mentioned folk magic, yes. but your background is also in ceremonial magic. I don't know about the word ceremonial. Free form, I, I always think, like, um, it's still ritualism, ritual magic, rather than ceremonial. I think that I had some... Because of the Golden Dawn and OTO, it's supposed to be quite Masonic, really. Um, so I, I'm obviously familiar with that. But really, I know I think my approach has always been a, a little bit um, more on the folk side, more on the ri- free form ritualism is a, kind of one of the ways we used to, used to call it. But it's definitely ritual magic. So, but I, I think even the ceremonial stuff, really, the, the, it's, it's also, it's got a, a folksy element to it, one way or another. In fact, you could learn, if you study, you can learn that the way, say people's view of uh, magic would be kind of, if you're talking about it in the Egyptian context, would be kind of like that very ceremonial stuff that you see in popular films, really. Uh, quite sort of formal and uh, lots of costumes and <clears throat> and whatever. Uh, but in fact, when you look at it, historians have discovered that most of what happened in the Egyptian temple originally happened outside of the temple <clears throat> amongst the ordinary people. Uh, and they kind of took, in a way, uh, people, so, for instance, at Abydos, which is this temple of Seti the First that I mentioned, which is a whole wonderful thing to talk about in itself. But the the crazy thing about Abydos is that some of the most interesting aspects of it are kind of things that happen outside, of, immediately outside of the temple wall. Because technically, I suppose the ordinary people uh, didn't penetrate most of the temple. <laughs> there they were maybe some bits of it that they could go to. 
but they kind of worked out that there was a bit of the temple that <coughs> was where was was the kind of hot spot, if you like, where all the real core magical energy was focused. And even though that's deep within the temple, it's sort of deep within the temple means that it might be by the back wall, the back wall of the temple. And so an awful lot of magical activity focused uh, around the back of the temple, essentially. Uh, especially the consultation of oracles, which again is intersects with the idea of dreams. And the very, very famous oracle in the ancient world to the god Bez at um, Abydos. Uh, and the entrance to the oracle is, you can't get to it through the temple itself, you have to go around the back of the temple. And also, when they're consulting oracles, you see that you have this idea that the, the image of the, the god or whatever is going to give you an answer to a, a question. Uh, and the question, the survive and the answers sometimes survive. <coughs> So, and there's a way in which the the image of the god can convey an answer to a question. And it, it might be by the a religious expert telling you what the answer is, but it's more likely that something random and surreal will happen. So the the, the image will, will be moved around in such a way that it... <clears throat> so in, a, in effect, that the... This, became the temple ritual in the end that you take the image of the god who and this is almost like hinduism as well the same thing happens in hinduism you've got the image of the god that lives in the heart of the temple where nobody else can go because it's their private space but every now and again once a year or several times a year the priest will take the image of the god for all, out of the temple on a special uh, chariot or of some sort or boat and uh Thousands of people will get to see them. And they, that's their chance to ask a question of the God. So not just to worship or make their offerings, but they come and they they ask a question. Um, and so they've got a group of priests with this image of the God that's quite heavy and they're carrying it. And the way they move, whether they step towards you or whether they step back or whether the image rocks or something or other, so you, you, you ask the question the way... It, answers the question and and that's that's the oracle that's the way the oracle works and people might write it down for you and that system which becomes hugely blown up into the, into the essence of uh, uh, egyptian temple ritual form of ritual which again if you think about in india they do the, they have these great chariots and they take the god out the same exactly the same very very similar uh, that's that. So this obviously started life as just a normal folk oracle outside, where people are consulting a, a, a special little shrine or a rock that looks like the god. And the people who run the big temple have decided, well, thousands of people are turning up for that. They kind of have to bring it into the temple. They have to take it over in a way. And it becomes the ritual. It becomes the liturgy of the temple. So most temple liturgy in Egypt and I think in India as well starts life as folk magic, uh, often connected with the dead, um, and it, over time it, it becomes over, blown up a little bit and made 
slightly more sophisticated perhaps, but brought into the temple and becomes part of the temple ritual. So the study of the folk magic is the key to religion, really. That's how it, all religion started, um, by judging by all these ancient sources. So if we want to learn it again, which we're having to do, then that's obviously the place to look. There are some interesting tidbits from the history of religion and politics in Egypt and how the two interact with each other. One that most people know is the pharaoh Ankhenaten and his attempt to instate monotheism. But there's also the lesser one, known one, which is the god Sat. All right. You want me to talk about him? <laughs> if you like, I mean, it, it would be very setian of you to say no and deny my request. <laughs> well, tell me again, what do you, you think it, there's a political... Poli, in a sense, the politics plays a big part in uh, Egyptian religion and and always has. And <clears throat> perhaps that's the case for every, everywhere. They used to... The, in a way, the myth, the core myth of Egypt, which is this, which Set takes a part in, which is this um, myth of Osiris and Isis and Horus, the kind of drama. Um, that is a political myth, it, because it it has a it seems to have a a moment in which it starts, uh, and it fits with. It seems to take a whole lot of older mythology, including the mythology of Set and, and Horus, and rework it um, into a new story. And hence there are all sorts of bits in the story that don't quite add up when you look at it, because they've incorporated all, all these myths. So in, in a way, it's trying to... It's all It's all about the god Horus and established this idea of um, kingship of the king having this very special semi-divine status and that, that was obviously a big th moment in Egyptian history in, in which the in, almost like the clever people or the scribes in the temple one of their jobs was to take all the old myths and kind of produce some sort of um, mythological underpinning for that and when you hence in the archaeological record there, there's a there's a point in which the gods osiris or certainly the god isis they don't seem to exist they, they seem to have almost they exist in some form or another but it's almost as if they've been reframed and given a whole new story uh by quite clever ideologues and, and that always makes you think that's quite is it can it be a true myth then can is that true religion where where it's obvious that there's kind of an element of manipulation taking place i mean you could say the same with other religions as well they they have a beginning in history <coughs> I, uh, uh, and there seems to be a some political meddling as uh, gone on in that myth that, that um, it's it's r rather difficult to 
to get your head round. And I suppose that, and that leads so with the Setian side of it. Set plays this role, is given this role in the in this story as the um, as the as the kind of figure who tries to cheat someone, tries to cheat. Well, I suppose you try. Whereas you might think before, being the firstborn <coughs> would not necessarily make you. You say in in kings and queens, it's usually the firstborn is made becomes the successor. And that obviously wasn't necessarily the case then. <coughs> in an older time, they might have chosen the king on an, on a completely different basis than just the accident that they happened to be the first one that was born uh, to to that particular parents. But that that myth sort of obviously is about the, the idea that Horus is is the legitimate heir. He's, and that Set in some ways has tried to swindle him out of that and the story is all about really telling you how that can't happen and why the special things have to go on and in the end the king is is a Horus king and that's quite a and unifies us not, rather than kind of having some sort of democracy if you like <laughs> or sharing the power out between various members of the family it's got to be one strong male ruler and that's a a special moment in world history really that the religious myth seems to help along and set in a way sets uh mythology the god set it suffers in he's he's actually You'd say a god who has a true myth, because we a true myth by definition is one in which you don't really know where it comes from. Its origin is is always been there, and we've always um, venerated a particular set of ideas or a particular deity, and you don't know when that started because it's all it, it was there from from the beginning. And so that's tr you'd say that's that's likely to be a true myth. It, it hasn't been manipulated with that we can recognize it's just what it is um, but in the process of this political reorganization that smith gets twisted um, and turned into something else and he becomes this kind of eventually he becomes a kind of model for evil really although not at that stage i mean that's a lot later as well but even at that's even at the moment we're, we're, we're talking, he's not really evil, but sort of darkness, really. And so, and the outside of the person who objects to a particular king, say, well, why should he be king just because he's born? He's, he's, he's not up to it. He's not up to it. He hasn't got what it takes. And they say, well, it doesn't matter. He's legitimate. Uh, <clears throat> so in, in a way, it's interesting to to go back to or think well what 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 some people think that set was always bad that's a one point of view so a lot of people subscribe to he's always kind of the satanic demonic figure and others think well no there's something more interesting about set there's something sort of psychological uh magical in a way about set <laughs> that if you could strip away this piece of politics um, you get to something that it might have that lessons for us about um, that, that we've, we've forgotten you know that it can teach us things 
<laughs> Although it's something that we need to remember. We need to remember what it was, what it was like before the politi- politics intervened and uh, sort of uh, distorted it. Even though, as I say, I'm not trying to say that the myth of ISIS and Osiris is. I, I meant when I say true, it should be an in inverted comma. It's just a question mark. That once you see the traces of a manipulation of a myth, you wonder how authentic it is. Uh, it's a legitimate question, and of course that's always the thing about Seth as well. That he he he's very aware of this process and always threatens to say, "Oh well, you know, it's political." This. So Seth, one way or another, I mean, I could say a lot more, right? But Seth has got is because then there's the question of whether his myth might have a political element to it as well that that uh, might have political implications and that's and of course it's been he's been adopted in the modern world by certain people with political agendas because they think he represents some sort of political point of view and it, this fluctuates as well about what that political point of view might be. Some think he's going to be uh, representative of a kind of more authoritarian point of view. <coughs> but then others would say, well, you look at them, it's not authoritarian. <laughs> it's a sort of more anarchistic in a way. He, he, he wants to break down all these kind of uh, these structures. So he can become a totem for or any political thing, any political point of view or maybe politics maybe the Egyptian mythology part of the interest of the Egyptian mythology is that is again like as Freud would say it's it's about human nature it is it is telling you the way that people even the gods relate to each other they don't relate to each other necessarily in some idealized perfect way there are all sorts of strange uh, wheeler dealing stuff going on, and the spirits themselves also uh, interact in this kind of. Uh, there's a political element to that, so yeah, there's plenty of. Um, there's plenty of stuff to learn, really, about what has been said. H- history really is sociology. History is really about now. It's about the way we are now. Which sounds pretentious, but it it is. I've been. I say the probably should finish soon. But the book I really <laughs> recommend that people look at is David Graeber's book, Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. Uh, which is he's an anthropologist studying the notion of debt, and you think, well, God, because we're obsessed with debt in the modern world, aren't we? You know, it's like it's destroying the world, really. It's the big issue of our time. And for someone to write a book saying, well, actually, the keys, some of the keys to the way we approach the notion of debt and money, you don't, it's not, it's actually quite old. Uh, and rather alarmingly in his book, one of the first things he does is show that credit, the notion of credit is first, comes before money. And of course, if you, Study, you look at Egypt, that's so true. They didn't have money in ancient Egypt. They had credit, uh, or overseen by the state. So the politics, the political issues are very, um, alive in ancient history, I think. One way or another.
And what's truly magical about what you just said is today I am recording an article uh, written by someone else for an academic journal on that topic. Yeah. On the subject of debt, it's a very funny story. It yeah. involves Polish people. So, well, that's rich. Well, <laughs> what goes right comes around. It's, it's all about It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Anyway, definitely read that book then. It sounds like you have to get going. We have a lot of yeah. content here. Yeah. And I... No, we could put together several more shows. Yeah, let's do it again. Like, We've aired our we prejudices. Should... <laughs> 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 All right, thanks for coming on. It should yeah. be up uh, on Sunday, Monday at the latest.